Thanks, Luke. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Beautiful morning. I'm just going to put my glasses on. Actually, I went to the opticians earlier this year. Some of you have heard this. And the optician said, now you're getting older, you should wear these glasses all the time. I was like, okay, thanks. You're sat there, you're quite vulnerable. And they're like peering in. I was like, okay, thanks. So there we are. I can see better now. Um, it's really good to be able to speak to you today. Um, what a privilege it is, isn't it, to, to be able to meet together freely here and express our love to God. I loved um, the song we started with, We Are the Confident. We are the confident because we know God has given us Jesus. And um, I, I just felt the Spirit really loves revealing the truth of God when we give him space. And as I've, I've been aware of that, um, preparing for this today, how precious it is that we can study the Bible and learn from events and people who lived thousands of years ago. That's what we're going to look at today in the Old Testament. And that God miraculously speaks to us through it today. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm really grateful. So, as many of you know, we're in in a series at the moment um, looking at the life and the poetry of King David. The series is called Worship and War. Two things you might not think go naturally together, but we've seen they reflect the power and the sensitivity of God working through David, who was both skilled in defending God's people in war, but also wrote the most heart-wrenchingly beautiful poetry we read in so many of the Psalms. So he was a man of action and reflection, and both things are really important, aren't they? We often just think of poets as sort of um, otherworldly, sitting there, thinking, writing, sort of wafting in the clouds, not particularly down to earth. But David wasn't like that. He's both in the middle of the action, he's defending his nation in war, and he's making time to reflect and craft the most poignant and honest poems about his inner emotional world in connection with God. It's remarkable, both action and reflection. And the part of the story we're looking at today is critical. It's a critical moment in both David's life and in the history of Israel. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And it's the moment where David, who isn't yet king, finds out that King Saul and his son... who was David's very close friend, Jonathan, have both been killed in battle. So he hears this news from an enemy, an Amalekite, and he's completely overtaken by grief. And he writes this beautiful song of lament. My glass is clean. So today's title is called A Song of Sadness as David laments over Saul and Jonathan's death. But we're going to see also that in this passage, David's response is so much more than just sadness. He shows grace, honour, dignity, love and forgiveness, as well as grief over Saul and Jonathan's death. We're going to look at what it means to know who we are in God, if we believe him. And we'll also learn how important it is to lament and to express grief. I don't think we're very good at that in our culture. We're quite awkward, 
repress our emotions. We don't really know how to express ourselves in that way. But David, in his poetry here, shows how important it is to weep over death and loss, to mark it, to sing about it. Singing stops time, doesn't it? We have time to reflect in the poetry of the words and the music. That's what I love about singing. It's been amazing this morning. It stops us from rushing on to the next thing in life. So it's so, it's so important to reflect and honour people we have lost. So this song of sadness says so much. There are going to be lots of things that are surprising in this chapter today about how David responds to the news of the king's death. But first of all, before I read it, um, I just want to rewind a little bit to help us understand where David is at this point in time. Because although he will become king, one of the most famous kings of Israel, he's not there yet. (laughs) Saul has been the first king of Israel that God gave his people. But as we've seen in 1 Samuel over the past weeks, he wasn't obedient to God. Saul was not obedient to God. So God takes away Saul's anointing And he anoints David as the next king instead. But David doesn't become king immediately, which is important. And at this point in the passage today, it's actually seven years after David's received this anointing from God. And he has had a pretty full-on and unusual time of it, like we've been looking at. He spent those years on the run from King Saul, who's basically jealous of David. Because Saul can see the hand of God on David and he doesn't like it. And we read that a harmful spirit enters Saul and he becomes intent on killing David. So multiple times Saul has tried to kill David. But each time David's protected and saved. And often by his very close friend Jonathan, who's Saul's son. They have this amazing and loyal friendship. So it's become so bad that David's fled Israel for for his life and he's living in the land of the Philistines, who are his enemy. Goliath was a Philistine, um, you'll remember. And David is scared for his life. It's got to the point where he's even volunteered to fight with the Philistines against his own people. But thank goodness they refused him um, to have him in their army. But even in David's weakness and fear we see God's grace and hand on his life, delivering him from his fear and death. And in the final two chapters before this, at the end of 1 Samuel, David's just recovered the town of Ziklag, which I think sounds like a character from Sesame Street or something. I I haven't actually watched Sesame Street, but I think there's something with the Z. Um, Anyway, Ziklag. Um, And which has been raided. Ziklag, the town, has been raided by another enemy of Israel called the Amalekites. So he's in this town, Ziklag, when he hears the news of Saul and Jonathan, who've both been fighting against the Philistines. And then we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that Saul, faced by the enemy, actually kills himself. It says he didn't want to be killed by the enemy for shame, I guess. So he falls onto his sword, which is tragic, and devastating news because this is the king of Israel the leader of God's people dead 
So let's read how David responds to the news. If you've got your Bibles or a phone or something, and the words are going to be on the, on the screen here, we're going to read first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 16, and I'm going to speak a bit about that, and then we're going to read the lament itself after that. So here we go. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told them, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for this, um, this chapter in your word, Lord. Thank you that you, you, you still speak today by your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you we can learn so much from you this morning. I pray that you'll open our ears to hear from you directly, Lord. Humble our hearts this morning that we would be um, so ready and so quick to hear you and obey you this morning. Amen. So, wow, we're in the, um, the thick of the drama here. Here's an Amalekite who's an enemy of Israel. He's trekking 80 miles to tell David that the king is dead. Why is he doing this if he's the enemy? He appears to be in mourning. See in verse 2 with his clothes torn 
and dirt on his head, which are both signs of death. And when he reaches David, he falls to the ground in homage, respecting David as he will be the new king. Which is weird, as he's the enemy. What's he doing? Well, he's thinking, oh, good. Saul hated you, David. He spent years trying to kill you, and now he's dead. So it's even better that I can claim that I killed him. So he thinks David will be pleased and relieved to hear that Saul is dead. But he completely misreads the situation. The Amalekite's trying to impress the new King David. He basically wants a government job. So he lies to get ahead. He assumes that David is driven by the same passion for power as he is. And so he proudly tells the story and shows him the trinkets, saying, oh, look, here's the armour, here's his crown, as if to sort of show off, saying, look what I've got, here's the evidence. And see from verse 6, he recounts the story of Saul and Jonathan in battle. And then says, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And then in verse 9, he claims that Saul said, stand beside me, that's it, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. The Amalekite here is actually making up that he killed Saul, because we know from the previous chapter in 1 Samuel that Saul actually kills himself in battle. But David doesn't react in the way the Amalekite's hoping. You see how David responds to this news is remarkable. This is the news that the man who's been trying to kill him for seven years is now dead. So you might think that David would have been relieved, wouldn't you have been? Like, phew, I can relax, I can go back to Israel, I can see my family, I don't have to fear my life, and I'm going to be king. But no, look in verse 11, he takes hold of his clothes, tears them, and alongside all his men, mourned and wept and fasted until evening. For Saul and for Jonathan, it says, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. His response is urgent grief. So why does he respond to the news in this way? Why isn't he just relieved? It's because he knows who he is in God. He isn't just David, the shepherd boy. He has God's anointing, his spirit in him. And he sees himself as part of Israel. He wants to protect the honour of God's people. And now the king is dead. So this is devastating. And this is why he actually goes on to kill the Amalekite, who ironically gets the comeuppance for killing someone he didn't actually kill. Because David says, go execute him. Why? Because he's killed the Lord's anointed. David puts it to the Amalekite. How is it that you weren't afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? It's because Saul wasn't just David's enemy. More importantly, he was God's anointed king. And David honours that above himself. The more I've thought about this, the more amazed I am. This is 
David, who two years previously, or a week or two back in our sermon series, is crying out to God to save him from the hand of Saul. And now he's absolutely devastated. You see, David responds to this message with a heart of honor. He knows who he is in God. He's bigger than just himself. He doesn't react as an individual, relieved. He carries the importance of God's honor on him. And he weeps with the heart of God in response. He sees the bigger picture. He sees his office and role as king. He honors and respects Saul as God's anointed. I don't think it's easy for us to understand the mentality of David going on here, I don't think. We're not really into patriotism, are we? Or even a sense of collective identity. Our culture is pretty ruthlessly individualistic. Society says prioritise what you want or need to fulfil your desires and who you are. And that's all that really matters. We find it hard to respect authority. And I know we're reacting against a lot of abuse of power in the past, but we can't bring that into church. And we can't bring that into our attitude towards God. We need to remember who we are in God. We're not just here to further our own individual happiness in life, are we? To get on in our career, to have a perfect family. Our calling is so much greater than that. Do we know that? If we call ourselves Christians here today, it says in Hebrews, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses to run the race that God has set before us. Not a race we set ourselves. Because like David, if we're Christians, we carry God's spirit inside of us. We're part of a global family here this morning who believe in the true King Jesus, whose name is utterly holy and is to be honoured and protected against the enemy. And it struck me, in our, just in our individual way, individualistic way of thinking, do we take that seriously? Do we protect the church as we should? Do we protect the name of God as we should when people speak out against him? Do we protect and pray for our leaders here? It's, hard, it's a hard thing to grapple with, but I felt when I was preparing for this morning and praying, I, I, I felt God say to me, remember who you are, Susie. Because if you believe in Jesus, you're a child of God. And we're not living for ourselves, are we? We're living to share God's love that we've been singing about this morning and purpose to those around us. It's not to better our own career, whatever we're living for. You see, David here hears this news, this terrible news, with his heart, not just with his ears. And we know from 1 Samuel chapter 13 that God chose David to become the king of Israel because he was a man after his own heart. Wow. (laughs) He was so sensitive to God's purposes and honor, not his own. And every day, don't we, we hear news of a different of a certain kind, not like this the news that David heard, but something said to us every day. People say things to us, don't they? Could be an urgent call from a friend, 
confession from a spouse, a report from a doctor, an email from a colleague, gossip gossip from a neighbour, a report on the news. And when we hear this, how do we respond? Do we hear with our ears or do we hear with the heart of God? What does our response say about our heart? How often are we filled with fear or anger, bitterness, pride, lust? Because our focus is on our own good, our own glory and not God's. Do we remember we're first children of God? We have to protect and honour his name above our own. Our identity isn't our own, is it? Because like David, he knew that his life wasn't primarily about him as a man, it was about God. We don't want to be like the Amalekite, do we? Tempted to look for opportunities in the rubble, in bad situations, telling white lies to get ourselves ahead. We're here to give glory to God and keep Jesus' name holy. You see, when you know who you are in God, it affects everything. Which is why David responds this way in grief. And he writes the most beautiful song, which we'll read now, shall we? From verse 17 to the end of the chapter. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. You see, grief both erupts like it did when David first heard the news and tore his clothes and wept and fasted. But it also remains throughout time. Grief is a continuing process, isn't it, as many of you will know. And by writing this lament and saying that it should be taught to the people of Judah, there in verse 17, it's to help the people lament and remember what happened on this day. 
Because David's mindset isn't just about him, he carries the importance of the whole people of Israel on his heart. He wants people to remember this day, to remember how the mighty have fallen, which is where we get that phrase from. We forget so easily, don't we? I forget all the time what has happened in the past, both on a personal level, but also as a nation, which is why remembering is so important. That's why we sing songs, to remind us what God has done for us. That's why reading the Bible is so important. To remember that we don't just exist in this little isolated bubble of today. History matters. What God has done for us matters. And for David and the people of Israel, he knew that lamenting was really important. So this lament opens with the image of Israel's glory being slain on the high places. David sees something bigger than just these men lying dead. It's what they represent. It's the glory of the nation and ultimately the glory of God. And he can't bear for the thought of the enemy, the Philistines rejoicing over their defeat. See, in verse 20, he says, don't go publishing it in the streets of Ashkelon. Keep the news quiet. He even curses the mountain that Saul and Jonathan died on, Mount Gilboa. He says, let there be no dew of rain upon you, he cries out. He's ashamed of their suffering. Why is lamenting so important? Well, I think it helped the people of Israel remember their brokenness. They're without a king. David's not yet anointed. I think it reminds them of their weakness and their need of God to restore them. This is David crying out at the nation's loss and tragic state they're in. The people of Israel needed a king and they needed God's help big time, didn't they? They had a king and now he's dead. But this passage shouldn't leave us in despair with Israel as a defeated people. Because David who is about to be crowned king, we're told, is a picture of a much greater king to come. Did David rule well? Yes. Did David rule perfectly? Definitely not. He's not the hope here today, is he? (laughs) He died. He's long gone. But God gives a promise to David that his kingdom will be established forever. And he did that through the eternal king. This is about Jesus, isn't it? Who's called the son of David, the king of kings. Jesus is the ultimate king that Israel is waiting for. A thousand years later, we can see in Acts, I think it's chapter 13, um, it says for, this is the verse, for David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and saw corruption. So he died. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus isn't dead. (laughs) That's what we've been singing about. And David here in this passage is a shadow, a foreshadow of Jesus who was perfect. So is able to forgive our sins completely. And that is why David has this most amazing, remarkable response of forgiving Saul. Saul who's literally been after his head. 
He's able to forgive him and write this poetry in praise of him. Look, he calls him beloved and lovely. I don't know which verse that's in. He calls him beloved and lovely and praises him for being as swift as an eagle and strong, stronger than a lion. It's so gracious of David here. He's able to take the brightest view of Saul, who's made his life miserable for years. And he forgets. He forgets and forgives his wrongdoing. And in one of the most beautiful passages celebrating friendship, it's my favourite bit, in verse 26, David weeps for Jonathan, his closest friend. He says, Your love for me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women, which might seem a bit full on. But I think it's the most wonderful picture of friendship. We know that Jonathan had devoted his life to saving David's life. It says in, back in 1 Samuel that his soul was knitted together with the soul of David. There was a trust and a loyalty that David didn't experience romantically. I have to just say, David had three wives at this point, and he goes on to have eight. So it's not the same sort of undivided loyalty that we see today in the marriage. Um, and when I was thinking about David and Jonathan's friendship, I realised that Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, who's the king, should have actually inherited the throne. He was next in line. But never once he's, he, is he resentful of David being anointed as the next king. He honours that spirit, the anointing of David, and he protects him completely. Wow, this is the love of a friend. No jealousy, just love and protection. It's remarkable. I think we're so obsessed with romantic love in our culture, finding the one, sharing our lives with them, that we sometimes neglect our friends. I wonder how much we overlook our friends sometimes. And it's just an encouragement. I think back of all the amazing friends I've had, all the friends here and the friends I've got in London and further afield. And it's that we we can't forget to protect and love and serve our friends. Can we? And you know the most beautiful thing, what the most beautiful thing is, is that just as David and his ability to forgive Saul, praising him here, reflects Jesus' ultimate forgiveness. So is David's friendship to Jonathan a shadow of Jesus' friendship with us. Jesus says in John 15 that he no longer calls us servants, he calls us friends. Sorry. Do you know that Jesus is the best friend you'll ever have? If you follow him. He's better than any lover. Sorry. He's better than any spouse, any sister, any brother. Having a friend in Jesus who forgives you perfectly. He doesn't remember how we hurt him. The time and time again. Oh, thank you.
It changes everything when you know Jesus as your best friend. He's the only one who truly understands what you go through when you wake up. He knows us and loves us completely. And I'd love us to know that intimate friendship of God this morning. It's life-changing. And if you've never experienced this kind of love, if we're only obsessed with romantic love, and if you'd like to, I'd love us to respond. If you've come with someone today, speak to them. Or any of the leaders or myself. And for us who need to remember who we are in God and how we hear, how, how are we going to hear news this afternoon from whoever we speak to? Are we going to think about ourselves first or are we going to think as a child of God, hear them, forgive them, understand them? Let's invite um, God to just meet us now. Why don't we... Um, Stand and sing one of my favourite songs. Um, yeah, I think it's a delirious song. <laughs> and that we would honour God in our lives above ourselves, just like David did with this response. <coughs> and that we'd love Jesus as our friend. Shall I just shall I pray first? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us this morning. Thank you, God, that you speak right to our hearts. You speak right to our situations. You know us so intimately, and yet you call us out of this small bubble of thinking about ourselves. You lift us up to see who we are in you. We're not just about ourselves here this morning. God, help us to see who you are in all your glory. Help us to honour your name. Help us to protect the name of the church. Help us to pray for our leaders. Help us to not just be quiet when people speak against your name, God. That we would honour you in all your glory. And thank you, God, you are our best friend. Not in some sort of smolchy way. You protect us. You forgive us. You provide for us. You're there for us. You never forsake us. You never turn away from us. You're always there listening to us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would you'd give us that um, loyalty to follow you. The loyalty of Jonathan to, to not care about his own future, but to protect David. Help us. We love you, Lord. Amen.